A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 91, an interview with author Vincent O'Reilly. I'm always keen to promote any kind of celebration of Byzantium in popular culture, so today I talk to American author Vincent O'Reilly about his two Byzantine novels. These are attempts to fill in the gaps in the historical record, rather than fantasies with just a toehold in reality. The first is called Count No Man Happy, and tells the story of Constantine VI, the man who was sadly blinded by his mother Irene just before our narrative ended for this century. As you may remember, Constantine was betrothed to Rotrude, the daughter of Charlemagne, before the plan fell through. Theophanes claims that Constantine was very sad when the engagement broke off. Though he'd never met the princess, he seems to have developed an affection for her. Vince takes this idea and describes the frustrated world of young Constantine as he lives in his mother's shadow, struggling to be his own man. As he mentioned in the interview, he was inspired by the 1940s movie Laura, about a man falling in love with a woman he's not met, to shape the story. And, drawing on 1950s culture even further, the book uses a very interesting device to explore Constantine's mind and to connect the obscure world of Byzantium with our own modern times. This is done through the character of Beth, a 1950s pin-up model with an interest in history. As Vince explains in the interview, Beth is based on Betty Page, real-life pin-up model, and her story, as in Beth's, runs in brief snippets alongside the familiar stories of Aetius, Stavrakios, and Irene. Vince pronounces Stavrakios Staracius as it's spelt in English, and also refers to Nicephorus at one point. This is one of the five brothers, the other sons of Constantine V, who kept being put up to replace Irene as emperor and were repeatedly demoted, banished and mutilated during the narrative. The second book is called Antonina, a Byzantine slut, a title I quiz him about during our discussion. This is of course the Antonina or Antonina, who was the wife of Belisarius. Like Justinian's wife, Theodora, Antonina came from a disreputable past of acting and prostitution. Yet Belisarius was loyal to her, to a fault. She came on campaign with him and made valuable contributions to his work, while also seemingly undermining 
his reputation with some of his subordinate officers. She was also accused of carrying on an affair with Theodosius, the son of a friend of Belisarius's, who the general adopted after his friend passed away. We know all of this gossip, of course, because Procopius, Belisarius's secretary, wrote about it in his secret history. Vincent wrote this book as a corrective to Procopius's slant. It offers a more sympathetic and pragmatic portrayal of Antonina as a tough woman in a tough world. During the interview, Vince makes reference to Robert Graves, who similarly filled in the historical gaps with his famous novel, Count Belisarius. Now, here's the interview. Vincent O'Reilly, welcome to the History of Byzantium. Hello, Robin. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I will start with the obvious question. What first got you interested in Byzantium? Ah, Dr. Felix Vondacek back in when I was in college some 60 years ago. You know, at that time, um, when we studied medieval history, it was entirely Western history. Uh, if you book a, picked up a book on uh, great military leaders, Belisarius would not have been there. Uh, so, Dr. Vondacek, uh, who is an expert on that part of the world, um, taught a course in medieval history, and um, it was it was an eye opener to me because coming out of high school, I didn't know anything. Matter of fact, I have some vague recollection of a textbook back in my high school days that says the Roman Empire ended in the West in such and such a date. Uh, but continued a shadowy existence in the East for another thousand years. <laughs> that thousand-year shadowy existence was, you know, the highest civilization this side of China, if not higher than China. Hmm. Uh, and so his, his lecture series inspired you to want to find out more? Oh, yes, and there wasn't much to find. At any given time, there were probably only about six books in English in Bacchus um, books in print. So you didn't have much to work with. And there was no fiction. Um, it was that, was, that was it. And uh, over the years, uh, I tried to maintain an interest in, in Byzantium, but you know, you could start working. That was a news uh, librarian for many years. Uh, and it fades. You wish it wouldn't, but it does. And uh, when my daughter had her first job, um, she bought my wife, Tomiko, and me uh, tickets, airline tickets and hotels and things, to go to Constantinople. Mm. Uh, you know, the amazing thing is it all flowed back as if it just as strong as my feelings had been when I was in college. It was like there hadn't been that gap of all those years. Yeah, that's fantastic. And was it that trip that then drew you to the idea of writing historical fiction yourself? Um, well, I've always been interested in the characters I wrote about ever since Doctor Vondercheck told us about them. Uh, Antonina and Belisarius. I always felt that uh, Antonina uh, has gotten a, a bad rap from historians. Um, it was a very uh, brave, uh, resourceful, independent, streetwise woman 
And Procopius slanders her because he's this prissy aristocrat who, uh, I think he, he thought he should be Belisarius' right hand instead of her. Huh. Interesting. Uh, and what about Constantine the Sixth? Same thing. I learned about uh, him from from Dr. Bonacek, too. And these have stayed with me all these years, sitting in the back of my mind waiting to be written. Uh, what happened when I, later on, I started writing a bit of fluff uh, about Constantine VI and uh, the daughter of, uh, of Charlemagne, Gertrude. And I was thinking of the uh, the movie, and I guess earlier the book, of Laura, which some of your listeners may know, in which a um, detective falls in love with a portrait of Laura. And uh, in the end, it turns out she is alive, and he thought she was dead. But that idea of being in love with somebody you haven't met, well, that struck me as Constantine VI, the Charlemagne's daughter. And I started writing this little bit of fluff, and I, with this um, uh, pin-up model from the 1950s. Now, she's not, uh, uh, she is not Betty Page, she's very different, but it was Betty Page uh, who inspired me, because she was also this very liberated uh, woman, did a lot of uh, pin-up work. She's best known for her fetish stuff, but the best best stuff she ever did was her, sm- uh, her um, pin-ups with a glorious smile. And I got into this and thought, you know, I'd write this fluff about these people. But I, somewhere along the line, I remember, I, I knew it, I just had forgotten, that this is the guy whose uh, mother had blinded him. Well, you can't write a piece of fluff about somebody whose mother blinds him. Uh, so the story got more serious. Had I started um, out to write a, a book like that, I probably would have taken a character from um, further back in his history. Maybe it might have been more believable to write the dream sequences that way. But I didn't write out, write out the big character of Beth, I call her, because uh, I liked the character. <laughs> That's really interesting. So it, it was more that, you really liked the idea that that Laura had inspired in you. It wasn't a deliberate attempt to try and ease a new reader into Byzantium by giving them a more familiar um, well, uh, I- idea in the 1950s. Specifically, no. But in a general sense, yes, that's why I wrote both stories. Uh, because there is very little fiction uh, about Byzantium. And frankly, the historians don't seem to encourage it. Uh, they like their own have their own little niche. They don't like uh, fiction writers getting in. But there was uh, Count Belisarius by Robert Graves. And if you want really good writing, Robert Graves is a very good writer. But yeah. I think my uh, story of uh, Antonina is more historically accurate. Yeah. Well, I, I enjoyed uh, Count No Man Happy very much. Um, I think... Uh, you know, those of us who, who get really into a period like Byzantium, where you are left with very little to go on about what someone was really like or what they went through, um, it's really interesting to to put flesh on those bones, even fictionally, um, and to imagine, you know, oh, yeah, maybe, you know, I'd never thought of that, I'd never thought of this. And um, in particular, I think you, you drew out um, a lot of eroticism, a lot of sexuality in the story. Too much. 
<laughs> it, it, it's not just erotic. It tends to get a bit depraved. Well, it, 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 it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, but I, I thought that was very interesting because uh, Constantine's story is about frustration. You know, he, he's unable to fully reach manhood in many ways. He's unable to be the emperor in his own right. And, um, his you know, beats him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and all this is in the in with the backdrop, of course, of, of being uh, the Christian emperor and his mother, you know, going on a campaign to, to get herself seen as the protector and savior of, of religion. Do, I mean, did you set out knowing that? sex would play this part in the story no. always, or did it, did it come out as you were writing? No, as I say, it started out as a little a bit of fluff, a little uh, uh, short story, and it got out of hand. Um, well, it, I think it's a very interesting angle on uh, on his story, and um, I think people will have to read to uh, to fully appreciate the title of the book. Well, you know, I do, yes, and I, and I do try to... Um, humanize people. Uh, too often, these characters are portrayed either as saints or sinners. You take a guy like Nicephorus here. He's, he's a traitor. He's uh, uh, a would-be rapist. He also is, uh, is planning on retiring to a monastery uh, and get into heaven. Uh, it was a different age than ours. But uh, the ability of um, uh, self-deception is the same then as now. Yeah. I mean, d can you find a way to feel sympathy for Irene when it comes to, you know, blinding her own child? It's kind of hard to... Um, and I try to um, uh, uh, show the other side of her, too. I mean, again, she is able to... Uh, she is human. She has this one sex scene of sorts with her there, uh, which is thrown in primarily to say here is uh, a human being. She's not always going around making religion. Yeah. Were I writing the story again, I would probably put some more politics in because she does, a, it is, a, I hate to say, a cardboard figure as far as religion is concerned, but she is very much involved in that to the exclusion of other concerns which she leaves to her first minister. So maybe it wasn't such a bad idea because, uh, after all, Storatius, her uh, first minister, uh, knows more about that sort of thing than she does. Yeah. Interesting. Well, it's a, um, it's a, it's kind of a bittersweet story, as people uh, can imagine. Well, they um, had a very sad life. Anybody who thinks it's yeah. necessarily a good life because you're rich or, well, you know, important, mm-hmm. Not necessarily so. No. Um, and of course, uh, uh, Antonina, uh, an equally complicated life, but we know so much more about her. So um, where with Constantine, you had to add a huge amount from your own imagination. With Antonina, you, you tried to stick as much as possible to the historical narrative as Procopius left it to us except that we don't know much about her youth. Uh, so I had to make that up, and I, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I somewhat follow um, um, Graves in the idea of that meeting on the frontier, Belsarius and Antonina. But 
it could have I could have written something different. I could have uh, made it that uh, Theodora threw these two together with the intent of being able to control Belisarius. Uh, so you can do anything in the fiction of her early years. But uh, here was a woman who was prostituted by her own mother as soon as she hit puberty. So, I mean, what do you expect? Uh, Procopius and all the historians who follow him, who follow him since, uh, sort of uh, degrade her. Uh, and I, I think that's terribly unfair. As I said before, she is a very street-wise, independent person. She's the one who led the, first of all, raised a small army, and then led the army that uh, relieved Rome. And the the uh, noble generals, they are led up. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, can I just, uh, because uh, Gibbon says, says about her, something better than I can, never can just take a moment. I, I, I laid it aside here for this discussion. Sure. He, he says, she reigned with long and absolute power over the mind of her illustrious husband. Now, if Antonina disdained the merit, merit of conjugal fidelity, she expressed a manly friendship to Belisarius, whom she accompanied with undaunted resolution in all the hardships and dangers of a military life. Um, Gibbon's not known for saying nice things about people. But he does about her, and I think just because she was maligned. I think he was jealous of her. Yeah. But uh, he, the things he doesn't say, for example, he says that besides uh, her affair with Theodosius, she had other affairs, but goes into no detail. And from what we can read between the lines, if he'd known any facts, he would have put them there. Yeah. You know, he's just rep- repeating gossip. Uh, he uh, he has a timeline. That's what I was going to say. He, he obscures the time, timeline of Antonina's infidelity. Uh, I mean, we're talking. I think it was at least five years apart between uh, 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 Sicily and uh, Constantinople, and he makes it sound like they're one right on top of the other. Well, what was uh, what were they doing in the meantime? Probably nothing, because if they had been, he would have told us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so much of what historians have to do in a period like this is is read between the lines. But what, it doesn't what? excuse the historians since then who repeat. No. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, not at all. But so you felt you were, you know, somewhat redressing the balance. Yeah. Procopius is bias. Oh yes, I, I definitely uh, in, intended uh, this as a uh, payback. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I, I make uh, I make out, um, and I do I do put in a footnote that this is not justified by the historical record, but I made him a, a eunuch as a little, uh, as a little okay. <laughs> revenge. <laughs> but, but I do explain I, it's a pure invention on my part that there's yeah. no, no evidence for it. Um, and so her her position, you know, despite uh, all her positive contributions and her strength, her position in his eyes is always demeaned. And, and is that what contributed to your choice of title, yes. a Byzantine slut? Yes, because she was a slut. Yeah. But so what? Uh, you know... Uh, 
I always told my children when they were growing up, look, prostitutes are just people trying to get through life in the only way they know how. Yeah. And here she was, daughter of a, um, a charioteer uh, who died, and, you know, her mother puts her on the stage when she means prostituted. Uh, she's living in this world of, you know, 42nd Street, Times Square, 8th Avenue. Uh, you, she's, you don't expect a plastic saint to come out of this. But having said that, she loved Belisarius very deeply, and he, her. And this was uh, what impressed me, you know, 60 years ago, is that Belisarius didn't care. He loved her no matter what. When she had uh, the infidelity there, I, I say in the book, it was like um, in the movie The Graduate, uh, where uh, the protagonist, I can't think of his name, uh, describes the uh, affair as a handshake. Hmm. And I think that's the way Angelina probably thought about it. I mean, she had enough men, she wasn't getting uh, uh, so uptight about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, one angle in particular, which uh, I certainly didn't discuss much in the podcast, um, was the idea that uh, Theodora may have used Antonina to be her eyes and ears and to increase her influence on events on campaign. Um, that was quite, I thought that was quite an interesting part of the book. Again, kind of making you think about a different side to relationships, which we might just take at face value. And some historians take that uh, as a given, that Theodora did that. And as I say, I could have made the story all about that from the beginning, um, but, but chose not to. Um, but certainly she was uh, uh, Theodora's eyes in the, um, on the ground now. Yeah. I mean, it was she who uh, uh, basically uh, ran the trial of, of the Pope, not Belisarius. Yeah, he while they were hurting his hands with that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it was it's very interesting. Um, yeah, did you find it difficult covering such a large period of time um, in the narrative? Um, because obviously we're talking about decades and decades passing. Well, you um, know, I'm not um, a fiction writer specifically. Uh, I tended to write about periods in this that were interesting me at the time, and then had to connect them together. Uh, I can't, in all honesty, I kind of tell my old English professors and that I did not outline this before I got started. So you kind of let it grow as you yes. wrote it? In both cases, actually, both books, yes. <laughs> and wh as you were writing, what, what, which part... Uh, did you find the most enjoyable to write? Was it the stuff that you kind of created for yourself, or was it filling in the gaps? All the afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's where I, I justify my my uh, getting away from the historical historic record. Sometimes um, I have one very intelligent friend who read the books, and he read the the uh, the notes first. Yeah. Yes, I should say both books have 
notes uh, at the beginning and the end telling you who characters were and historical terms and places, which is all very helpful. Well, uh, this doesn't explain the text, but if you've forgotten it... Like, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And most novels won't have an index, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's very ha- but it's very handy when you're dealing with unfamiliar names and places to have that. Well, remember, I wasn't writing this for historians. I was writing it for laymen uh, who heard of Byzantium and they think of a China patent or a perfume or something like that. Yeah. And so you do have to explain things. Uh, and uh, even more in Count No Man Happy, I think, uh, I find I talk to people, they don't even know what I'm talking about when I say the Eucharist. So uh, <laughs> I explain everything. And, you know, the readers will probably say, of course, I know this. So, yeah. But not everybody does this younger generation. No. No, you're so right, I mean, and you have to. Brought up in a uh, uh, a time when our, our uh, paradigm is is uh, religion, and spirituality, and such uh, that we were when I was young. Oh, absolutely! You know, you you can't take for granted people's knowledge of religious things, um, and I'm always looking for ways to get people into Byzantium because it is so unknown. But it does uh, mean the first three chapters of uh, Count No Man Happy have to explain a lot of the religious background. Yeah. Well, for readers, uh, well, for listeners of the podcast who go to read these books, hopefully that will be no problem because most of this context will be familiar to them. Hopefully they'll get into the story quickly as I did. Um. And so, yeah, I hope people will check them out. Uh, you can find them on Amazon, and uh, Antonina is in Kindle they both, form. They're both, they're both or, 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 uh, fantastic. Uh, paperback either way. Which is great. Um, perhaps uh, we should also say that the books will say that they're by Paul Castanello. <laughs> well, I Castanello, and I spell it. There you go. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I said, you know, who, who's going to read a book about uh, Byzantium by somebody named it so rarely? But I should have put two L's in Castanellos. Yes, well, I've had uh, tremendous struggles with pronouncing things correctly in Greek, uh, despite the help of very kind people. So you have my sympathy with that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we hope this is another way we can tempt people into learning more about Byzantium. Um it, are you tempted to write any more? Are there, would there, if you had the time, would uh, there be another I topic? I have the time. I, uh, unfortunately, uh, well, assuming I'll die, I'm not a young man. <laughs> uh, uh, but it does take a lot of research. I was thinking of doing something on the time of uh, Galapocidia, but mm. you start just looking at the number of people <laughs> involved. And yeah. It's uh, a task. Uh, oh, absolutely. So... I intend to continue to write some, but what it'll be, I don't yet know. I've done a few uh, false starts. I haven't been happy with them, so we'll see. Well, uh, I think we wish you the best of luck. And, well, I should uh, mention, you know, that if you don't mind, yeah, um, there are excerpts in the book, along with a lot of other stuff, on my uh, website. Absolutely. Appaleus Books, which is easy to remember for your listeners because... Uh, we all know the golden ass uh, of Lucius Apuleius, so it's Apuleius Books dot com. 
And uh, I have excerpts. I've also got my rantings and ratings about things and, you know, a lot of links to cultural stuff, Byzantine things, but also uh, old music from when I was young and things like that. Absolutely. And I, have, I will have links uh, up at the, at the historyofbyzantium.com uh, sending people there. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. So, yes, just to clarify, if you're looking for the books online, you will see them for sale by the author Paul Castanellis, Vince's pseudonym. Find links to Vince's website at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. I will be back soon with our final end of the century episodes as I answer your questions and look forward to the ninth century. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.